This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor, here as always with my good friend, David Blakeslee. David, how are you doing today? Doing super. Uh, just had my birthday yesterday. And it was Happy a nice birthday! Little... <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, broken a new grill and a new patio table, had my family over, and I've uh, had a fun week. I got to see Daisies on the big screen at our local film society the other night, which was... One of the reasons I got involved with this film society is to bring some of these great art house classics to uh, the local theater, to see them in a crowded theater with a bunch of folks on a large format. So, uh, yeah, kind of living the dream over here. <laughs> that is awesome. That is that is really cool. I I saw your picture outside of the you know of, of the daisies on the the, mm -hmm. the playboard. You know the yeah. uh, the marquee and was very jealous i would have loved to have been there of course <laughs> it was great i mean it, it was a, a really nice turnout you know people i think probably the majority had seen the film before but almost to a you know everybody i talked to had never seen it on the theater screen it was mm -hmm. always watching it at home even if you got a group of friends over there's nothing quite like being in the theater and uh, yeah just a, a real marvel and it was also opened by a film called unemployees which was made here in Grand Rapids. It was actually shot last summer uh, using mostly a crew of students from Grand Valley State University where the director, Joel Petrikas, was a, uh, he's a faculty there. And uh, one of our members of the Film Society was actually a co-producer. So, um, and it was a film directly inspired by Daisies. It's about a couple of young women uh, in you know 2020s USA whose aspirations in life are to get fired from a job so they can draw unemployment <laughs> and prove that money does grow on trees so you can sort of you know uh, kind of play it out there and you can sort of see how the daisies inspiration from 1966 <laughs> Czechoslovakia has uh has you know transmuted itself uh, some 60 years later in uh in the american context there so yeah <laughs> and, and it also it's also streaming on the criterion channel so uh people want to check that out it is the only 2023 release so far that i think criterion has put on their streaming service and it's pretty exciting to have a local personal connection like i've met joel and i know brianna one of the co-producers on the film so it's pretty pretty awesome to sort of feel like i'm getting closer <laughs> to the source there yeah that's really cool. And that sounds like a great double feature. Yeah. Uh, how, how long is the uh, unemployees? Unemployees, it's like 22 minutes. So okay. it's basically, it's it's like a student film, although it's made by a professional director. Joel Petrikas has had other films on the Criterion channel. And he's kind of seen as one of the more interesting uh, indie you know, almost like underground slash punk rock style filmmakers, which actually kind of cues us right into Jean Vigo, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. He, so he has had some commercial releases, but he's uh, also, you know, very much doing it his own way. And uh, I think he's a, definitely a filmmaker that even if he didn't have this local connection, uh, I'd be keeping an eye on to see what he does next. Hmm. Well, I'm going to be checking that out later on today. It's, it's nice that it's short because then... I yeah. can always find 22 minutes. Yeah. If it yeah. were, and, and, you know, 40 minutes, then it's like, okay, I got to find a, a time when exactly. no one's going to bother me. But <laughs> Right. Well, and when we were talking about daisies, you know, as a, planning it as a film society, because I'm on the board there, I thought, well, it's a great film to show, but it's only like 75 minutes long. So it's like, it's a bit much to ask people to come out and, you know, 75 minutes later and you're out the door again. So we mm -hmm. found a, a very nicely paired short subject that went with it. 
And Joel actually gave some opening comments and very clearly alluded to Daisy's role in kind of inspiring not just him, but the rest of the students who made this film. So kind of a cool little experience we had. That is really cool. My my theater going experience this year so far has been most of the big ones, you know, Barbenheimer, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Spider-Man. Did you do the two in one day? I did not do that. My oh, wife, that... I, I would have loved to, but my wife went to both of them with me and there's there was absolutely, I mean, she did not know if she wanted to sit through Oppenheimer in 10 sittings, let alone in just one. <laughs> And would yeah, never have been yeah. able to do Barbie and Oppenheimer in the same day. So we we did do them close together, though, like in the mm-hmm. same week. But uh, but yeah, that that was that was our experience uh, in the theater. Much more typical of the year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, honestly, I think those are two pretty substantial movies. I mean, cramming mm-hmm. them into one, you know, seven hour marathon <laughs> is a bit is a bit much, you know. So whatever. But, you know, not not to criticize anybody who did that. I know it was a thing. It was a phenomenon. But yeah. uh, I appreciated having a little space between both because there was a lot to digest in each one. There was. I kind of wish I could have done it that way, though, yeah, just yeah. for the fun experience of saying I was there. I did, I did that. You know, <laughs> right, I don't right. think it would have necessarily helped my viewing of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you. The space would have been fun. But some of these big cultural things, it's fun to just say, I remember that and, you know, we, we, we were there. We did that too in 20 years or so. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, I talk about seeing Star Wars on its opening weekend and Alien. And I think this is right up, right up there as far as big movie events. All right. I can probably start telling people that I did it, though, you know, and maybe yeah. in 20 years I'll think that I did. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> this document, this podcast will always remind me. That's I right. did not. <laughs> That's right. We well, got you on <laughs> Well, we are here today to talk about a box set that's kind of not a box set uh, in the typical <laughs> fashion. Um, this is the complete Jean Vigo. Um, I was there the day that this Criterion release was uh, uh, first released, David. Do you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember the the anticipation though of this release because uh, they there was a, the question or you know what version of the film are they going to show and I don't think there was ever really a question but it was kind of exciting to finally get the 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 you know ten year old but newest best potentially as close to what Vigo had version uh, on disc and uh, widely available. And then when it came out and it wasn't just La Talante, and that's the mm-hmm. film I'm talking about. I think I mm-hmm. breezed right over that. La, La, you know, his final film. Uh, not only did we get uh, La Talante, but we got all four of his films that, that he did in his lifetime. The complete. And, yeah. Yes. The complete uh, Vigo. And just this special, you know, it looks like a, a normal single uh, disc. It, well, it is a single disc, but single jewel case, uh, criterion release, but we decided it was a box set because it's a complete master, a master's complete works, you know, a young master, uh, early 1930s French cinema. I don't think either one of us will ever, uh, give up an opportunity to talk about that, um, era. (laughs) So here we are the, the complete Jean Vigo. Um, and I'm curious about your experience when, uh, when this was announced of thinking, oh, here we go. And if you had any prior uh, experience with Vigo or if this was your introduction as it was for me, 
um, you know, just in general, what, uh, what was your thoughts on, what were your thoughts on this Criterion release when it first came out? Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a, a case of infectious enthusiasm. People who I knew, uh, including like people in my kind of immediate circle, like uh, Josh Brunsting, a pretty prolific contributor to Criterion Cast, he was all, you know, worked up about this, and as well as the more established critics, like, oh, this is really important. This guy is kind of a foundational influence. He's got touches of surrealism and anarchism and poetic realism. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Just mm-hmm. checking all the boxes <laughs> here. And maybe I had heard the name before or, you know, a little bit of a reputation, but I really had never viewed any of his works or really understood his significance. Uh, but, you know, all, all the pieces were in place for me to say, okay, yeah, this is this is pretty significant, pretty worthwhile it'll be, you know, a great thing to delve into. And, you know, you start learning more about his life story and, you know, dying at a a tragically young Mm -hmm. age, full of potential, influential on Truffaut and many others in the kind of the French cinema in particular. So, yeah, I'm like, wow, this is, this seems like a pretty, you know, pretty significant uh, release that is kind of right there in my wheelhouse. And yeah, I mean, I feel like these films, definitely did you know deliver now was i like swept away or just overwhelmed i don't think so i mean i I felt like well these are these are quality films interesting they're each one is his own little sort of distinctive Mm -hmm. style or type of film uh you definitely get the sense of boy wouldn't it have been great to see him live longer and what else Mm -hmm. he may have had in store so there is that kind of tragic element to it, which, again, is kind of the essence of poetic realism, isn't it? It's like, you know, this world is just kind of a, a harsh, cruel, and unforgiving place, uh, especially to those more sensitive souls or those more perceptive types who just don't quite fit the mold of the mainstream, and uh, all too often it costs them their life. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the picture I get out of it. But the other thing, too, is that I think it's a testament to Vigo's influence is that so much of what I found you know, interesting, but not like maybe revelatory about these films is that their influence has led to others following in his path who have done those same types of things and taken it to new levels uh, where, you know, what he had sort of set the stage for has been kind of maybe realized on a more polished or more technically proficient level, or has just been, you know, kind of more fully explored. And so, that sense of novelty or surprise wasn't quite there. Uh, and it really wasn't until I got into even some of the documentary supplements and the commentaries where I started realizing the magnitude of what Vigo accomplished and what he meant, especially to that time. And also even, you know, how, how different and innovative he was even in his own period, which was of course a time of great fertility and and creative license and freedom at least in some circles i mean you think about other french directors like rene claire or even like early louis bonuel Mm -hmm. Uh, they're doing a lot of interesting stuff um jean cocteau you know the blood of a poet wasn't too far from from this time and so you see just amazing work being done on shoestring budgets by guys who just have a camera and a crew and a few ideas. And it's like, let's go out there and do it. And Vigo was right there with them. You know, you talk about the, the novelty maybe wearing off a little bit because uh, other directors maybe have paid homage to these things, but also, you know, you, you get these techniques. I, 
maybe maybe just to pull out one of the films, uh, his second film, a short 10-minute uh, film about a French swimmer, Jean Tari, uh, it's named Tari, uh, came out in 1931, is really amazing when you when you watch it because mm-hmm. it shows this swimmer in slow motion underwater you see the water flowing over the swimmer's body and that must have been absolutely jaw-dropping in the early days of cinema because you know when else could you slow down these movements and appreciate them but like we kind of maybe felt with nakoi katsi uh, mm-hmm. When we talked about that last time, the the novelty of these uh, digital images and all that that we've seen now so many times, I mean, you know, you turn on any sports sporting event, uh, any swimming event, and they'll slow things down and show you, it it doesn't have the same oomph as it must have yeah. had in its original showing, um, and yet he's still playing with things, you know. He's 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 got these underwater shots of the face and kind of you know. Bah, Gag, you know, making faces at the camera. There's a playfulness to Tari that I think is, it still makes it fresh. But I was, you know, I was glad it was ten minutes and not. 50. <laughs> yeah, 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 and especially, I mean, and you talk about like the Olympic films and all mm-hmm. of the incredible work of capturing the body in so many different contexts and environments, including swimming. Uh, and we've seen, you know, we we see that on our TV. You know, we see Michael Phelps and, and yeah. the amazement, and and we even can as do it a, on our phone now. You know, I can well, record my right. kids jumping off right. the, the dock and doing cool things, and it mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. fun, but it's not new anymore. Yeah, no, your your comments bring to mind some of the thoughts I had about the Jean Panlevé set, which was the what the science is fiction, all of these, you know, underwater films that he was doing about aquatic life, you know, octopuses and seahorses and just all, you know, fish and coral and all the things that are wriggling around underneath the surface of the water. When audiences saw his films, they had many of them, the majority I would imagine, have never seen these creatures before. They certainly had never seen them in, in life live motion and, and and you know movement and all of that uh rendered cinematically. And so he was basically introducing a new level of awareness of the world around them to humanity. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's like well, but you know, but we've we've lost that. It's it's become very, very familiar right now. And I, I also feel like, you know, his loss at a young age kind of, I was thinking, well, how, who was like an equivalent? Um, I think maybe in the liner notes or somewhere, there's comparisons made to like Shelley and, and Keats, you know, poets who died young. And I think about the American blues guitar player, Robert Johnson, uh, who was, again, a foundational figure of, of like Mississippi Delta blues. Uh, who end up having an inordinate influence on like American rock and roll, you know, decades after he died. And it wasn't just the fact that he played these guitar licks, which, you know, there's like 34 tracks that he's recorded on. And many of them are alternate takes of the same song. So he's got like 17, 18 original compositions to his credit. But those notes and the way he laid them down just had an outsized influence on so many other you know, blues guitar players later on, you know, in, in history. And he didn't invent the blues. He wasn't the first guy to play that kind of music, but not only his, his technique, but also the, the circumstances of his, of his short life and the impact that he made on those who knew him kind of create this aura about this, this 
genius that, that was tragically taken from us uh, all too young. And so the few artifacts that remain are kind of extra precious mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. prized because of that's all we get. And, and even though there was a capacity for so much more. So yeah, I kind of feel like that's the mystique surrounding Vigo. And uh, this, this, this collection here, not only again of the four films, but there's a very nice like hour and 38 minute uh, French TV episode. That's really kind of a interview from the 1960s with people who worked alongside him, who went on to have you know pretty long and successful careers in the French movie and TV industry um, you know, kind of preserving that legacy. And so I feel like the, this set really just kind of gives you all of that. And uh, obviously the, the important thing is the privilege of watching these movies and just reflecting on, you know, his unique uh, perspective and ability to capture these little slices of life. And, and uh, really, like I say, four different formats, four different styles of filmmaking. And there is a unique personality that comes through mm-hmm. in these films mm-hmm. too. Uh, you know, I, we, talk a little bit about the technical aspect of the the you know the the water shots and the swimmer in Paris uh but there's a there is a person behind these films that I think is distinct and and appealing as well but it probably took me a few times through it uh to start Mm -hmm. to sense that person uh versus just trying to capture what what is going on in these films and it's hard to know what, what do we give, do we give all artists that leeway that, oh, okay, I didn't, maybe I didn't capture this the first time. You've got these four short films. I'll watch them again. You know, I'll watch mm-hmm. them again and again until I finally start to realize what people love about them. And, you know, then, then you start to, to sense these things uh, versus just dismissing them. Um, but I, I liked, I liked Apropos Denise, the first mm-hmm. film, uh, quite a bit the first time I watched it. And then when I watched Tari and even Cheryl de Condoui, I didn't really know uh, if I was enjoying those uh, that much. <laughs> right. And and the first time I watched La Talante, I was expecting to be blown away because everyone mm-hmm. you know, kind of says this is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, certainly one of the best French films of uh, and definitely of the 1930s. And when I watched it, it was a long time after I'd watched many of my favorite 1930s French films. And I was thinking, I'm glad I got to see uh, Michel Simon, you know, in in this (laughs) this role, but I don't have any idea what I'm, what's, where's the magic of this film. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see that it's good. You know, there's nothing like, it's not a piece of garbage, but, but what, how are so many people loving it? And I think I'm starting to to get it a little bit more, but yeah, you know, you bring up a, a, a very valid point of is what aspects do we impose upon these because of the mystique of, of, of Vigo? You know, one of the things I love about La Talante is knowing his personal story as he yeah. shot the film and what happened mm-hmm. to him before it was ever released. And I don't, you know, I don't give films that kind of leeway that I bring in other things around them um, to inform my appreciation of them. But nevertheless, it is a part of this film for me, that final shot and how, uh, you know, of the, the above the, you know, from above ground, that is his final shot ever, mm-hmm. but he didn't even ever get to see it. You know, it's just, yeah, 
there's something to that, that all of a sudden we have this mixture of the films, the artifacts and the myth. And I think that's a very fair uh, way of, of approaching these, these four uh, pieces, but I guess in particular, maybe La Talante. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really don't think you can separate those. And I mean, if he had gone on to have a long career, a la like a Jean Renoir, who was making you know pretty, you know, pretty excellent films at this point. But I think we look at the stuff from this early era of Renoir. You know, uh, Tony Boudou, say from Browning, etc. Those are like, well, they're, they're still kind of he's still building to that crescendo that you're going to get with Grand Illusion and Rules of the mm-hmm. Game and 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 even other stuff that he did in the in the later 1930s, um, and then go on to his full maturity uh, with the River and, and all the stuff that he did back in the you know 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, so you know Renoir was blessed with that longer life um but this well could have been seen as Vigo's apprentice work if he had maybe gone on to do more so Mm -hmm. I I really feel like there is there is that element here because you know like I say I I I liked the movies but I I didn't I wasn't just swept away in rapture even even as I've tuned more into the you know the the romantic you know sort of magical element in La Talente and the you know the story of this young couple working through the the bumps and you know <laughs> you know disruptions of of young married life where you know we don't really get the story of their courtship i mean the film literally opens with their <laughs> wedding and now boom they're living on a barge and it's like how did she ever agree to this you know i mean yeah, but 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 you know you get caught up in the story and it's like yeah that's that's pretty affecting but but you're right it's like it's it's there's a certain haste to it um and and the fact that it was kind of thrown together, not in a not in a, a rambling way, but it it doesn't do all of the things that we're used to doing to setting uh-huh. up what we consider like that epic romance, you know. So, if you yeah. don't mind, what yeah. right along that, my first note on this film is yeah. it's such a strange film because its characters and its structure just don't do what we expect a film to do. Yeah, you know that mm-hmm. the actors don't well, other than Simone, they don't seem to fit their roles very well. And at the same time, I love it because of that. <laughs> we'll talk about yeah, that, right. but, but yeah. I'm a hundred percent in agreement that it, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't do what you expect it to do. And in some ways suggests a weakness, you know, something that we would be critical of other films mm-hmm. for, for, uh, you know, this isn't tight enough or these characters don't feel like they're quite hitting the mark um, or it wraps up way too, way too fast and, and right. uh, in a, in a way that doesn't feel real. And, you know, you listen to the commentary uh, that I, I really do like the, the commentaries by Michael Temple, who is a biographer of, of Vigo. He, every time he's like, and that's why this is so good, you know? This is this failure is why this film is magical, you know, and it it it's interesting. <laughs> and as I'm yeah. listening to it, I'm like, man, would I have been one of those Gaumont executives who's like, this is garbage. We're not releasing this this way. <laughs> Cut it up, you know. Right. Or would I would I have any kind of way of 
capturing the magic. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. We need to make this about an hour long as an opening feature and put a hit song in there and right. you know trim some of this eccentricity out because people just don't know what to do with it. I mean, that is probably the, the truth even for mass audiences. Like, you know, I was talking about programming daisies at the local theater. I'm uh, not sure I'm going to put in La Talente as a as a feature at the film society anytime soon. Cause I just don't know what the draw would be, you know, maybe in France or in, in real kind of hardcore cinephile circles. I'm not, you know, I, I would imagine if you screen this, there'd definitely be a turnout in some of our bigger cities where this kind of taste has been cultivated, but yeah, this would be a hard one for me to sell as like one of the, you know, greatest of all French poetic realism of the 1930s. It mm -hmm. definitely belongs in the conversation as one of the more important works, but I'm not going to, I don't, even, even after watching it very sympathetically, I don't know that I see it as a towering example uh, compared to even things like uh, Port of Shadows or Pepe Lamoco, oh. which really do grab you and sweep you along or, or even like a, a quote unquote minor effort like Renoir's Day in the Country, which is, oh, I you love. Know, just, completely magical and and yeah, effervescent <laughs> and it's another hour-long you know job that never got fully realized because uh, the production fell and you know ran and it's kind troubles. of better because of it for me <laughs> <laughs> right right but but it was a salvage job of a film yeah. you know but but you're right i mean it, it has that rough hewn quality that is but it's it's super effective and so you know, and maybe I'm I'm stepping on toes or uttering blasphemies here. <laughs> no one's going to know what that, we say yeah. after this point. They've all turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it is. It's 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 excellent, and and like what it does, what it does capture. Even even the time capsule aspects mm -hmm. of all of these films is is pretty special and so yeah maybe this, we need to go back to the beginning of the sequence and get it yeah. that way yeah okay i'm wondering if this is the first time in all of our years where i might have to try to convince you that there's more magic than you're seeing <laughs> well, <laughs> i don't know if that's think, ever happened before yeah. um you know if that's it, where we go sure I, yeah. I don't know if we'll get there because <laughs> it, fair fair enough you mentioned e each one of those titles that you just mentioned give me a chill in my spine just uh -huh. hearing you say the word and makes yeah. me want to go and watch them because I adore those films so much. Both my initial viewing, the viewings over the years, I just, I, I love them so much. And so I can't, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't deny what you're saying is, is very true. I mean, I, I would not, uh, I think we're probably very closely aligned in, in the La Talant and probably the mm -hmm. rest of the set in general. Uh, but yeah, I think going back and going through them step by step, you know, these these four films um, is it will will it is a fair way for us to still approach and capture some of the magic that we do feel, and to examine uh, maybe some of the reasons we don't we don't feel uh, the the same as so many of our of our good friends may feel about these films. Um, I can't remember, but I, I kind I guess if I'm wrong, I'll edit this part out. Um, but I think La Talante is one of Scott Nye's uh, all-timers. Yeah. He's and, definitely, you know, sung its praise and mm -hmm. puts it up there like in rarefied territory, if I recall correctly, yes. Yeah, so we probably should have, should have <laughs> uh, saw, seen if he could join us to to help us with that. But but we, I think we both recognize that um, this has cast its spell on many people that we absolutely respect 
and mm -hmm. uh, would would love to learn from and have learned a lot from over the years. So you know, but here's here's our experience with with these. Um, yep. Starting out 1930, here's a young uh, a young uh, man who's you know kind of had a, a rough past. His his father um, has, was an anarchist and has what ha, was in prison and died. And there is suspicion still that he was assassinated, you know, by the French state. Uh, we have him um, going from boarding school to boarding school through his youth. And under that, an assumed name, even. Because under of, an assumed name, yeah, yeah. yeah. And here he comes to start making films. And he makes this delightful, yeah. uh, you know, tableau of Nice, uh, a propos mm -hmm. de Nice that I think is just so much fun. There, There's little dance scenes. There's people walking around. There's people just enjoying it. And here is how he addressed the the folks that when this was screening. He said, this film, by showing us certain basic aspects of a city, a way of life is put on trial. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> the last gasps of a society so lost in its escapism that it sickens you and makes you sympathetic to a revolutionary solution. And I, I, I have seen this film three or four times before I've read mm -hmm. that. And I've always found it so just, oh, you know, it's like a weekend out on the town. Um, <laughs> just, you know, and there are, yeah. there are parts, there is the, the, the military, there's the cemetery crossings, uh, the crosses. There's, there's some strange um, aspects that I think I'd always just breezed kind of past. Um, but when I, you know, kind of read what he was doing here, I was like, oh, there is a lot to this. There's the playfulness, but there is the the disturbing elements as well that he's kind of throwing all together here. Mm -hmm. And so slowly over time, this film has become uh, more and more meaningful to me as mm -hmm. an interesting uh, project, kind of that, that poetry, you know, there's no, there's no direct there's no narrator telling us how to feel about all this similar to again go back to the Kotsi trilogy <laughs> right right we just get yeah. these things and maybe if i'm in a good mood i you know i'm like oh i want to go to nice in the in 1930 <laughs> mm -hmm. where vigo is saying hold on not so fast so i you know this is a 23 minute film um with a lot going on um and so yeah you know my my little introduction to this mm -hmm. Uh, what, how, how did you take to it? Yeah, I would say this is probably sort of my favorite film in the set, just from a sort of a, let's pop it in and watch it just because you're right. It's just, it's so full of interesting visual elements and, and innovation. I mean, this, this really does feel like it's got just a, a burst of, of creative you know, imagination, attention to detail, juxtapositions of different scenes and, and situations that create this it's not really cognitive dissonance but there is that travelogue element and if you cut certain portions out that's exactly what you get is mm -hmm. just like this little uh monsieur vigo's holiday or something like that you know <laughs> yeah I, I did write down does this lead to tati <laughs> <laughs> well i i think there is some of that element that observational life in the summer on the beach um some notes of privilege, but at the carnival, the celebration, all of that. But it's intercut with these scenes that are definitely darker, heavier, a little bit more uh, foreboding. I mean, there's those, you know, you know, those scenes of trash-strewn alleyways. Mm -hmm. That that young child who's got like 
you know, missing fingers and his face is disfigured. So you see the effects of the poverty that's happening, perhaps, you know, a mile or so inland away from the coast or away from the the hotel and entertainment district, the, the infrastructure, if you will, that keeps this affluent society going is, is basically, you know, consists of, of poor people who are just struggling to get by. And again, you know, you can never escape the context of 1930. This is just as the economy, the global economy is, you know, sunk into depression and yet there's still old money around and there's still people, you know, enjoying the, the leisure and the, 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 you know the, the the comforts of, of their lives, uh, but they're attended to by you know people hauling ash cans and you know people serving them the goods, um, and then there's the carnival aspect, which is just kind of the you know cutting loose and the temporary letting go of all of the kind of uptight expectations and inhibitions that kind of usually keep everything in check. Um, yeah, so th- that 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 yeah, there's just all kinds of interesting stuff that that takes on new dimensions of meaning as you as we put the images and scenes side by side so you know but i i i I love the 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 scenes of the sailboats those old classic Mm -hmm. you know these are these are boats with no motors or no engines on them The, the, the the wind is what moves them around and they're just beautiful shots out there on the bay um you know it's 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 really you know wonderful cinematography and I guess Boris Kaufman is the cinematographer, and he was Ziga Vertov's brother. You know, so mm-hmm. that again gets into some of the political and and uh, you know connections there that that Vigo had with his father, a noted a- anarchist organizer. Uh, like you say, yeah, he was uh, the official proclamation is that it was a suicide that occurred. And it has the look of a suicide, but, you know, people who knew him thought he was not going to just check out and give up that easily. So very questionable circumstances, but, but, you know, and there's Vigo as a young man in his, you know, still in his twenties, who's kind of coming of age. He's sort of seen the, the raw deal that many people get from this society. And yet he's still depicting it in its, you know, glamour and in its, um, affluence, but trying to get people to look beyond that surface to see, you know, how did the system get this way? And, uh, you know, he's not, he's not proposing a political solution, but he's taking these little subtle jibes, you know, these fashionable women. And then there's an ostrich head that just sort of pops up in the middle of the display. They're like, hmm, you know, uh, and so people who I think of the time recognize that subversive quality, you know, may have taken offense, mm-hmm. but he was absolutely, absolutely speaking to an audience that would connect with what he's saying and identify and, and support this message that he's trying to get out there. And, and playfully. So, uh, and yeah, exactly. This is not heavy handed, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it's still quite playful. You've got, there's, there's a lot of sexual playfulness in it mm-hmm. as well. I would say that I, 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 I'm still not sure what to make of some of the sexual imagery, um, toward the end when it shows like the statue with a puddle of water at the crotch and then, yeah. well, and, and the woman the, in all of her different outfits. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, she's go she's in the same pose, mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, kind of nice editing there. And all of a sudden she, she's naked, you know, so that could be seen as somewhat scandalous, I suppose. I mean, you weren't used to seeing nudity in film at this time, mm-hmm. but then he cuts right from there to sculptures of, of nude figures. So it's like, well, you know, this is a live human. <laughs> this is a sculpture. Like what's the problem here? You know, that's, uh-huh. that's how I took it. Yeah. 
Yeah, but this this is definitely a, uh, one that I think goes down quite nicely and is is fun to 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 watch again and again. Uh, yeah, for for me, and it it does. I don't know if you're ready to move on from it, but it does show um, the mm-hmm. the ingenuity of a young filmmaker that would that could be you know cut, capture the attention of some executives at Gaumont, the the French film company, to commission yeah. you know to to do a film like Tari. You know, hey, you 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 clearly know how to use a camera, and you're doing some fun things. You're twisting it on its side. You're we would like to feature our, our French, you know, national treasure swimmer. <laughs> yeah. It, it well, sense. I think yeah, yeah. I think here, I mean, just other things to point out mm-hmm. is you know, just like the elevated perspectives, these really high overhead shots. That's that's new. You know, maybe there had been other films where you had you know whether it's balloons, small airplanes, whatever the case may be. Uh, sorry about that. I'm getting, I'll recapture that. So yeah, so you're getting these like high overhead shots, aerial shots of the city, very steep angles, angles looking straight up smokestacks. Uh, and, and again, just the way these images are put together, a nonlinear sequence, uh, it reminds me a lot of Rene Clair's uh, short film Entracte, which I think is a supplement on one of the, it's either Under the Roofs of Paris or um, uh, Anu de la Liberté, uh, but these are films that he made around the same time, late 1920s. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of upshot dancing, the, the carnival figures at the end. You know, and I've already mentioned Bunuel and um, Jean Cocteau, but I, I really do like the freedom of these films that just, they're not mashups of just random images. There's a strategy of putting them together, but it's not the kind of documentary filmmaking that we're used to but it does sort of have a feel of that time and place and i just appreciate capturing these these little vignettes of of local life and carnivals the old way you know um it's just a fascinating sort of almost from an anthropological point of view and we do get a few little moments of vigo uh on screen himself as he's one of the dancers uh towards the end of doing a little can can there in slow motion so yeah it's it's a it's a fun piece of work and one that i definitely have watched just just for the fun of it uh several times over the years yeah well what about tari i mean we've we've brought Mm -hmm. it up um i've already gone through my notes for it this short 10 minute (laughs) film um but do you have anything that you want to add to that one um i see it as you know, definitely a curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it, it, it fleshes out the complete uh, Vigo, but, you know, like you said, had he made, you know, had he lived another few decades and made another 20, 30 films, as they sometimes did at that time, you know, but even another uh, 10 or so films, I'm not even sure if this one would be a supplement <laughs> until yeah. until you really were like, we need some more supplements for this uh, third, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth release of, of yeah. his films you know yeah i mean it it actually gets a mention on the cover of the blu-ray itself but i don't think it would merit anything more than just a you know deep footnote if uh if vigo had had a conventional career uh, had lived longer so i yeah i don't really have a whole lot more to say about it i think you summed it up very well the underwater shots obviously good kind of uh prelude into some of the underwater effects mm-hmm. used in la talante um you know, it was just interesting to sort of see this this guy, you know, I, I think I dropped Michael Phelps as a reference or even go back further like Mark Spitz. But 
the guy himself does not look like a world-class swimming <laughs> champion. He looks like yeah. a pretty regular guy off the street who just happened to perfect his technique a little bit. He doesn't have that, what I even say, classic swimmer's physique, you know. And even his swimsuit looks more like a diaper or something, you know. So, so Times and, have changed. Times <laughs> have changed, exactly. We've, we've perfected the, the technique uh, and... and uh, you know the the gene pool and and all of that as far as who 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 makes it to the top of the swimming but you know there's a little bit of personality that comes through i like the little special effect of him walking on water at the end and you know so again that that playfulness that kind of oh you're gonna give me a job i'm gonna go ahead and do what i gotta do to showcase this athlete but i'm gonna put my little personal touch fingerprints on this and uh you know, again, not not going too far off the script, but he's also, I think, even in the commentary track, they said that he uses this as kind of a calling card. Like, here's a, here's a nice resume item of what I can do. So, you want to hire me or what? <laughs> inoffensive, inoffensive, yeah. but still impressive. Um, and it, it seems to have worked. And, yeah, and and had some some of the studio folk put their guard down. <laughs> That's right. The last inoffensive thing he ever did. <laughs> yeah, because then we, we come, if you're, again, I don't want to cut you off, but we come no, to... No, I think we could, I mean, this thing lasts nine minutes. I don't think it warrants more discussion <laughs> time here than the length of the film itself. <laughs> other, than, other than his transitionary things. Yeah, yeah, so we get to his 1933 film. It's 45 minutes, so it's still fairly short, but uh, Zero de Conduit. Mm-hmm. which is a film about some students at a boarding house Yes, that was banned um, from release in France. And mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it's, this is how these things go. You know, we, we this yeah. is not the first time we've talked about a filmmaker who uh, said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this my way. And then it, didn't get released or, you know, kind of uh, put them on the, the blacklist for some time. Um, and you can see why, you know, this is, this is quite the <laughs> film. It's not quite Bunuel yeah. and his takes on, you know, the church or the, you know, the government and all of that. I mean, my goodness, it's, it's just not like Bunuel. <laughs> right. And yet there are things that make me think, oh yeah, that, that Bunuel would, would totally have, have clapped his hands at that moment and said, yeah, I love that image. You know, (laughs) I love what you did there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, this is one of those films. The first time I watched it, I probably took it less of for its poetic elements and more just as a narrative where I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, so these students are oppressed, of course, and they get into a big pillow fight at the end and then take on the, uh, you know, it, 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 it is, um, it is referenced that um, oh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, Anderson is it Lindsay Anderson? Yeah, Lindsay Anderson, who did like if? if is that if. what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know that the he he mentions that if is very much uh, you know not derived from, but uh, some of the ideas come from Vigo's Zero de Conduit, and yeah. that you know we can see that there because it does look like a student a little student uprising. Um, mm-hmm. That's still fairly, you know, inoffensive. It's not super dangerous, um, but if you're an authority figure, you could see this as being quite subversive. And I think that's exactly what uh, Vigo 
spent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is definitely, uh, you know, students in rebellion in an uproar. I mean, Vigo, or if, totally gets to a, you know, hyper-violent yeah, conclusion. Yeah, it's a little bit different ending. <laughs> and, this, and this is a, a, another good example of like, oh, we've seen this type of thing before, you know. Uh, students, uh, young people, you know, kind of overbearing adult authorities. They're foolish they're pompous they take themselves way too seriously and we're going to have some fun knocking him down a peg and kind of showing some of their the absurdity of how they you know boss kids around like they're just little peons and and also exposing um values and assumptions that were very standard among the authorities you know among the not just the ruling class or the the teachers and the faculty but the parents of these children i mean they often knew what they were sending their kids into, and that's where they're going to whip them into shape or build some mm-hmm. character and hold them accountable. Uh, so this one here, and because it is a little more slow, it, it it feels like, you know, this is a film that probably could have delivered the same type of punch in maybe 25 or 30 minutes rather than 45. And like, you know, 45 minutes is not like saying, oh, this movie dragged on too long It's it's or anything like that. But it, it's, it's basically taking its premise and, and kind of, playing it out you know more fully than perhaps you know contemporary viewers would say is necessary to get that point across and so yeah this is this is a film that i think is a little bit more of a mixed bag as far as uh you know a cinema viewing experience is concerned um i had actually seen portions of this i mean the famous food fight and the pillow fight with all the with all the the down flying around and kind of the slow motion aspect i mean it is it just kind of builds to this crescendo of of uproarious youthful rebellion which again at the time was probably you know a little bit shocking because you're you're not only um you know, depicting the the kind of rebellious youth, but you're you're putting cuss words in their mouth. You know, when the when the mm-hmm. student says, "I think you're full of shit," you know, uh, in, in French, of course. You know, that's kind of like you're, you're you're asking these innocent young children to sort of you know take on this this uh, mature dialogue, and um, you know, th- there's there's not really much of a consequence to it. They're they're never set straight. There's not even really a sense of the teacher and the students coming to a point of reconciliation. I mean, it, it goes all the way through to the very end where they're you know tearing tiles off the roof and throwing them on the people down below ground yeah, at the ground level. So yeah, it, it, it just kind of stays in that kind of rowdy uh, disobedient cast that uh, I'm, I'm sure was, was very hard to take for, for some of the people who were a little bit more preoccupied with restoring order and, and keeping everybody in their rightful place in, in the social you know, hierarchy of things. And you bring up a, a point that I hadn't really thought about, but that I think is worth thinking of with this. There aren't any consequences to their behavior. Right. Right. And that is false. Um, there, there isn't really a world that I can see where they'd be able to get up on the roofs and throw things during this celebration where the very forces that you're criticizing because of how oppressive they are don't respond with more right. consequences. I mean, we're, we're seeing the structure, we're seeing the the rows we're seeing the you know if you don't behave you don't get to have your free time on sunday the you know that's what the mm-hmm. title is referring to if you get a zero for your conduct 
then you don't get to go out. We're seeing yeah, you go to those... detention and the kids are out mm-hmm. having fun or having an extra slice of pie or whatever they get for it, right? It, it almost suggests that these are all things meant to to control your behavior, and if but if you act out, there's nothing there's nothing anyone can do about it, and that simply isn't uh, right. isn't actually how this would well, ever pan it, out. <laughs> I mean, it's basically an, an anar- anarchist celebration of disorder mm-hmm. and defiance. Uh, wouldn't it be great if the kids could just kind of you know go yeah. off and, and wreak havoc and get away with it. They, they kind of get the last laugh what do we here. Call and I think that, that wish fulfillment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Again, just kind of this kind of celebration of do it your own way. I mean, you know, obviously the, the sixties, the late sixties, the hippies and all of that were kind of another outgrowth or a, 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 a bursting forth of that kind of, I'm going to defy the rules and, and, live life on my terms a message and that was sort of commercialized and co-opted to a certain extent until the that dream kind of came to a crashing end but but this is kind of this fits into that that sort of category of uh you know sort of uh, guilty pleasure isn't the right word but it's basically we're we're just going to go ahead and visualize this this uh, uh this kind of overturning of the conventional social order and and just leave it at that. I mean, the audience has very clearly urged to identify with these children at the expense of the adults, and um, you know that's that's just a step that you know the the, the pro- propriety uh, of the times would not accept and and would not allow uh, to go unchallenged. And so, yeah, this film was not just frowned upon; it was actually censored and banned for a considerable amount of time. Um, even though, yeah, again, Vigo is is making a a, a well a well crafted film, uh, but but to mm-hmm. what ends? I mean, his 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 goals are are suspect through some eyes, but at the same time, you know, for people who are maybe looking for a full throated endorsement of that kind of you know youthful anarchy, um, it, it may seem a little bit too mild or you know it's it's kind of like you know the the children are just being kind of uppity and defiant and and uh disobedient um when you've got other examples of this type of thing that that take it much further into more you know provocative territory or maybe the the situation that's depicted as closer to our own experience this this feels kind of like a remote long ago way of doing schooling that isn't really in fashion anymore and so the rebellion maybe doesn't have the same kind of, uh, you know, attraction or, or um, I don't know what, what the, the poignancy because it feels kind of antiquated. You know, it's like those are issues that have long ago settled. We don't necessarily treat kids in school this way anymore. So maybe you don't identify with them as quite as much. I'm wondering too if there's just an innocence about it that mm-hmm. doesn't quite fit in with a, what would be a more anarchist uh yeah in, in reality i mean mm-hmm. and and this is where bunuel kind of comes in for me we've got this scene at the very end after the pillow fight the the teacher you know they're all kind of many of the teachers are portrayed as kind of bedraggled somewhat sympathetic <laughs> you know characters yeah they're, they're kind of pawns in the game as well uh-huh. they're they're not well paid they're kind of open to mockery and insubordination 
the only support they have is to just be meaner and crueler to the children. And Mm -hmm. somehow that will win their respect. Right. And you've got the one that falls asleep after the big pillow fight and the kids go and tie (laughs) him to the bed and lift the bed up. And then they put, you know, they put a, cross in front of him but it's not an actual mm-hmm. like it doesn't have a top part of the cross it's a it's t more, right, yeah, right. A t. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and it's in front of him in front of the camera and it is meant to suggest kind of a a, a little bit of a a crucifixion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet it doesn't, it doesn't go register very the far. same way. Right, right. Bunuel would have done it. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. He would have had the arms out and, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he did. I mean, he had very unmistakable, no ambiguity, straight shots at the at the ecclesiastical authorities and structures and called them out as such. There's no illusions in Bunuel. He, he goes right for the throat. <laughs> He and and you know Lindsay Anderson, we, mm-hmm. as we've already talked, goes farther. But he would have had the kids tearing up the roof tiles and throwing them and hitting some of the the authorities in the head. You know, yeah, but, yeah, but, knocking them out literally, mm-hmm. right? And so this is a very innocent and maybe because of that, it feels a little bit naive uh, anarchy. You know, mm-hmm. the kids are going to, they're kind of walking. You know, they're at the end on the roof and yada da da da. They're going to go into the sunset. No, that. that it just doesn't, you know, are they really going to come together the next day and just continue their studies? You know, it, it doesn't quite, it, it does feel like just a, a dream, you know, if only mm-hmm. uh, it mm-hmm. could be this way, uh, but without ever really putting the, the bite and the, the, the violence that this could, um, uh, could actually, and, and has actually uh, in, brought about uh and and because of that it you know it just feels a little bit you know beyond antiquated maybe a little bit soft well very soft relative to many Mm -hmm. other things that we've seen yeah yeah i mean um you know casting the the short man with the beard i guess they call him a dwarf in one of the commentaries you know as the headmaster that was seen as a pretty subversive, provocative act. I didn't really re- yeah. it didn't register as such with me. I just figured, well, he's just a guy who worked his way into that position. He, yeah, he's, you know, he is obviously very short. He speaks with kind of that high pitched voice, um, and you know, he's made to be a comical character. He's struggling to get his hat up on the mantelpiece and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize at the time, like that would have been seen as outrageous. Like how dare he? Right. <laughs> because, because I guess the, the actor, the, the dwarf Delphin, I think it was his name. He was a known performer, uh, kind of like Hervé Villachez, who was tattooed on the old fantasy Island TV show. So, uh, or Peter Dinklage, you know, another people, you know, another person who's, you know, born of a condition where they, they don't grow to the typical height. And so they're known as that type of performer or, or figure in, in popular culture well you know to, to cast that person as a headmaster i i wouldn't see that as insulting but apparently it was at the time so those are some of the the things that until you get maybe more context or information from the commentary track some of those some of those bolder gestures that uh vigo used just don't register with us in the same way because we don't have the the context or the, the reference to to understand you know the significance of, of what he did there. And with that one, probably thankfully so, you know, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just right, casting right. someone who's short doesn't, uh, 
isn't like what <laughs> fortunately yeah. you know these days yeah yeah uh-huh but you know but so i mean i think but if, if you can approach this film with a little bit of broader mind and and you know if you you know and i don't think there's any real obstacles to empathizing with these 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 boys you know these these kids are definitely in a terrible situation that was probably way too common uh, to the point of almost banality, like that's just how school was in France, or at least for you know uh, the, the majority of, of people their age. And uh, he's kind of throwing a wrench and and trying to expose things in that system that a lot of folks maybe just take for granted. And so that is, that's the that's the power and the value of the film. And again, you know, with his limited output, uh, it, this is a pretty important piece of work. But mm-hmm. it's not one that I feel especially drawn to, other than maybe those those kind of classic scenes, just because they are kind of, you know, they, they are definitely a little bit on the edge there. I mean, the the pillow fight when that boy does that little backwards flip and his, you know, bare body is exposed mm-hmm. is like, okay. And I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, he, he took things to what you can consider sort of a provocative uh, limit there. And so... I guess if you're just sort of a student of cinema and the the tradition of um, kind of taboo breaking or or pressing the limits, uh, you know, you see some good examples of that here. Yeah. Oh, well, are you ready for the the main event? You know, the I think so. The, yeah. The, the, yeah. The film that again, you know, whenever it comes up is is often categorized as one of the greatest films of all time, La Atalante. And mm-hmm. this is a, his 1934 film um, that, that we've kind of talked about. And Vigo himself died in October of 1934 uh, before the film was, well, he didn't really get a chance to, to, to see the final version of the film. Um, there were arguments a lot with the, with Gaumont for how, how to cut the film. And, and those were, being held in proxy in some some regards uh he while he was involved in the arguments early and i think argued with them often as they were making the film um i do think that there's a a fair point in uh, michael temple's commentary where he says we don't even know if by the end if vigo cared anymore you know he's got other things on his mind of course Um, yeah but the you know his they, they were trying to to maintain his vision but Gaumont did eventually cut this film, which we have on here as an 87 minute version down to uh, a little bit less than an hour. So cutting out about a half hour of, of the material and it's gone. I think through. they even changed the title too, they right? They changed it the was... title to a pop right. song at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's been through multiple iterations since trying to recapture the, what would have been the original version. And I guess, you know, folks think this is probably about as good as we're going to get this 2001 um, cut of the film mm-hmm. at 87 minutes. And we've already talked about it. It's, it's a strange, strange film begins with a, begins with a marriage, uh, a wedding, I guess I should say mm-hmm. uh, a wedding. And um, immediately afterwards, uh, the, the groom takes his new bride onto his canal barge. <laughs> this is where they're going <laughs> to make right, their right. home. And guess who yep. lives there? Michel Simon <laughs> with all of his cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I Romantic. mean, he, and, and I don't know what career he had prior to this. I think 
Well, I guess Badu Saved from Drowning was before this. That was in 1932, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So this was, you know, this would have been after Jean Renoir cast him as that kind of, you know, outrageous bum, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. who, who really did cut loose uh, to great histrionic effect and, you know, uh, and, you know, a really compelling performance and character and and all of that so and i think michelle simone gets top billing on this even though he's not really a the lead character i mean if you have to say the the married couple uh are the are the stars of the movie as far as they're the focal point of the narrative but michelle simone he's definitely a scene stealer you know and dita parlo she's the woman and she was uh, a known beauty i think she was cast because she's an attractive young woman and there's uh, that cinema magic right there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so those are the two. And then there's another guy. Um, what's his name? I, D say, John does say, so he's the guy who just sort of plays the part of the husband and, and uh, you know, he does a commendable job, but I don't know that, I mean, any number of actors I think could have done what he did. He didn't seem to have a, to me, at least, especially compelling presence, but he, but he's fine. Um, but yeah, so Michelle Simone is definitely livens things up quite a bit. He's the kind of the first mate or the the main hand on deck, other than Jean, who's the he's the hired skipper of yeah. this barge. And and there's yeah, there's no backstory. The, all the exposition we get about this couple is is delivered through. Uh, people walking in the in the wedding procession as they're leaving the church and heading to uh you know <laughs> to their new home uh people walking behind them kind of give a little bit of explanation of oh she's just the local girl who does things her own way but she's a rustic country girl uh even though you look at Dita Parlo her you know blonde locks and you know <laughs> trim figure and your beautiful face it's like well you know she was raised well in this in these rustic surroundings you know and um but you know she's she's a young woman who's kind of broken the mold a little bit and has married this guy uh who makes his living on this barge you know just going up and down the river with a pretty rough hewn character as his sidekick and it's it's not a you know glamorous or well-appointed way of life for a young woman who's just getting started but you know so you you can sort of project into it she's a a girl who wants to get out of the back country ways she wants to get to the big city here's this uh she wants paris right well here's a guy who at least has the prospect of getting me there if she marries one of the local boys she'll just be a farm wife the rest of her life and this is her ticket out so you you can sort of you know, fill in those gaps there. But, you know, she very quickly realizes that life on the barge is is a pretty rough, a rough go of it. So maybe this is a very impulsive, hastily agreed upon marriage. Uh, but, you know, there's also evidence that they love each other. They're, you know, you know, maybe this is their first true romance that they've ever experienced. And they're just going for it because, the, the, the times allow it and the times demand it. Like if you don't act now, what else, what's, what's better out there, you know? So that, that's kind of the, the youthful impulsivity of it all. I guess that's, that's the romantic element of like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. And there's any number of arguments you could make as to why we probably should have waited, or maybe she could have found somebody else, or he could have found somebody maybe a little more understanding of what 
they're marrying into, but they just went ahead and got married anyways. And and now we're going to have to figure out what we do from here. Such a strange, a a strange (laughs) film though, as we go through it, there are just these, there's these scenes you know, that that's the story in a nutshell. And, yeah, you yeah. know, of course, the trouble leads to them having a disagreement uh, where, where she leaves and he ends up, you know, disembarking and leaving uh, the port and going right. on down the, the to, to Le Havre. And she loses her purse and so she can't leave. So she has to get a job for a period of time. And then they, they reconcile at the very yeah. end because Michelle Simone's character... Uh, uh, um, it's uh, Per Per Jules uh, yeah, yeah. finds her somehow, you know, and a without very a, ever knowing how, how, how yeah, contrived. how could he ever find her? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. he yeah, doesn't yeah. know where she's at, but he does. He goes off and finds her. Um, I mean, that's the film, and yeah, it doesn't really work yeah. in those it, as just a, a narrative. I think a couple gets married, they have a falling apart, out, yeah. they get back together. You know, I mean, that's that's your basic rom-com setup right there, you know? <laughs> With multiple holes in this I one, was, you know, there's... Well, well exactly, I guess, right. I yeah. guess many of them do have their, uh, you know, fake reunions and such. And, mm-hmm. and yet there are these things that do lend some real gravity or some real... I don't know, there's some twist twistiness and mm-hmm. a lot of it comes from Michel Simon's character sure. because how yeah. could it not you know he is such a presence on the screen mm-hmm. uh, you know here we have this young couple and there there's the I think rather famous scene where Père Jules you know Michel Simon is on the barge uh, with uh Dita Parlo's character and they're kind of being playful and he he slices his hand with his knife and sucks his blood and you see her <laughs> she doesn't go over she's next to him just lap she doesn't she doesn't touch him with her tongue but she puts her tongue out and does a lapping motion and it's like what what is that about you know what (laughs) what is going on there and there's nothing else particularly sexual going on and then he takes off his shirt to show her his tattoos and Mm -hmm. is you know i I, I, who knows how much of that was just michelle shimon screwing around um versus you know something scripted but he puts a cigarette in his navel to you know because one of the tattoos is a face down there and it looks like it's smoking and there's nothing it's so charged and yet there's not a whole lot else going on they seem to be you could you could have cast there could you could have rendered that scene with him making some kind of an advance an overt advance or mm-hmm. her doing something but it's all this just weird under the surface unsettling and yet also kind of innocent you can tell they just are kind of they kind of like each other but not because of a of a romance or a sexual energy but that's spun in there just slightly just a tiny bit and and those are the kinds of scenes that then there's a few more that i'm like what what is this you know what what (laughs) they're they're unsettling but in a way that i i like but i've never quite been able to to make sense of the, of it um, 
in in any real way other than it makes me feel unsettled which could yeah. be it's it's very goal and that, that's fine well i think i think the situation here is that we have uh, a young woman who's very attractive uh who has her own sort of sexual energy and vitality and you know as a as a young man who's married to this very attractive woman you know the the element of jealousy and possessiveness is kind of another part of the context mm-hmm. of of what's sort of happening with the with the tensions in their relationship and so he um you know so he's got to figure out how to handle this this woman in this relationship and then she herself is also dealing with her own sense of maybe frustration or disappointment of life on the barge she has this little encounter with Père Jules uh, they get off board and go to a cafe and she meets this young kind of magician street performer uh, kind of peddler kind of guy who's you know very flashy very charismatic and just kind of a um you know just a very you know you know seductive type of presence i mean the, his whole thing is sort of hustling people and sweeping them off her feet and so i i think those are sort of other sort of contextual things that maybe don't jump out at you at first glance or as you're going through the film but you know as you sort of think about the situation these characters are in that that may be another part of the the tension that that's going on here is that she could conceivably get with other men and and jean the 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 skipper of the barge has to sort of cope with that like this whole element about who's your true love you know you you see their face underwater that's the sign i mean that's kind of i guess how how (laughs) the story resolves itself but but that's kind of you know the, the 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 big issue here is this somewhat mismatched couple under sort of tight hard circumstances has to find a way through to to keep that commitment that they've made again maybe hastily maybe impulsively they're not really in their maturity they don't really know what they've gotten themselves into but they um, you know they've got to they've got to find a way to work it out and so i think that's maybe that's the captivating romantic element that certain couples or at least romantic individuals might find themselves connecting with in this film uh you know you you're pulled in other directions but are you going to stay faithful are you going to stick it out were you meant for each other or not you know that's kind of the ultimate question that's being faced here because they both have options. He's got his job. He's got his, you know, dedication. And and she's a woman who probably could present herself to any number of other men and find uh, other others who would maybe show her a more glamorous or comfortable or appealing way of life than what she's married into here. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you kind of mentioned that uh Jean Dasté plays the, the mm-hmm. husband doesn't have a very compelling presence and I would absolutely agree with you in fact I think that was a stumbling block the first time I watched this is I'm like I, I first off of course she's not going to end up with Michel Simon you know mm-hmm. he's he he and and I don't think he would expect that he he his physical features you know he is he is rough He's tattooed. He's he's 
mm-hmm. you know, w- whatever kindness is in him is is subverted by his his physical bearing. Um, uh, uh, you know, but you know, he's a big guy. You know, in every film that he does, but <laughs> yeah. you know, in this yeah, one, yeah. he towers over her. Um, and yet, then you have almost the opposite with Jean Dastay's character, who looks fairly weak. And there's the part where he comes in and finds, you know, <laughs> Michel Simon with his shirt off, and sh- you know, is jealous <laughs> yeah, what the hell's going plates. on here? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't come <laughs> off very strong. It's like. You're almost like yeah. I, th- I think Daste himself doesn't want to be yelling at Michelle Simone. <laughs> yeah, know? like if I push him it's, too hard, he's going to kick my butt here. You know, <laughs> it's a yeah. role that he's playing, and it almost works. I think it does work to suggest yeah. that. I, again, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it makes it so that you see his character as also mm-hmm. playing a role. He is not convincing anybody that he's actually that kind of angry, brutish, masculine character. There's something different to him. Interesting. Yeah. It reminded me, there's the, did did you see um, the power of the dog? The, I haven't watched that one yet. No, uh -uh. but go ahead. Yeah. Well, so they, they kind of talk about casting for the color that sometimes you're going to have an actor that doesn't fit and a good director and will, know that and know how it works in the story when people mm-hmm. notice this person doesn't fit. And that's how I felt with Benedict Cumberbatch in the power of the dog. He does not come off as a convincing brutish masculine cowboy at, you know, as that movie goes on, you're like, right. it doesn't just, uh, it's not convincing. And that's kind of perfect for the film. That's the point of it. That's yeah. why they cast him in that. It's like a guy who sort of fell into this, role with all of its social expectations and you're supposed to be this Mm -hmm. type of personality and you react this way when you see another guy flirting with your woman you got to get you know ready to just you know pound and 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 assert yourself as the as the dominant man here and he has a hard time doing that (laughs) and that's how this one felt to me yeah it's very strange Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the the actor doesn't seem to be acting strongly enough and again i don't know if it's deliberate but we saw Daste and Zero de Conduit. Mm-hmm. He he does mm-hmm. a good chaplain stroll, you know, yeah. he, as he does that. Yeah. Not, he doesn't have a big role <laughs> right, in that right. film, but but right. presumably they could have done something to to make that a little more convincing, or maybe that again, I don't know what was intentional and what wasn't, but I think mm-hmm. that's part of the mystique of this film. Yeah. There's there's the you know to to put it kind of bluntly, the the mutual but distant distanced masturbation scene toward the end i there's (laughs) (laughs) they're both in bed in their separate places they've been separated for a while and uh vigo is having them you know missing each other and like there's the empty bed next to them but then they start to almost get really sensual with themselves you know you're not seeing anything um, no, it's but, it's just touch, but it's it's slow motion. You can you sort of again fill in the blanks. You sort of put yeah. yourself in that situation, right? Hot and bothered. <laughs> they're they're over yeah. each other. The the film is overlaid so that it it has yeah. them both sometimes on the screen at the same time, and yet we know they're 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 apart. And that to me, that there there is something powerful about that scene. Um, it felt 
if if there was I'm trying to figure out how to put this. There's the the aspect of that that it could be purely man I really need need some some sex right now, you know. Right. I it just need a release, come, right, right? Right. It just doesn't play that way for me and it works No, it's so a yearning well. for yeah. the person. They they're missing each other. They're missing what they know they have, which is mm-hmm. hard to explain. It doesn't make sense. People will still continue to wonder, how did the two of you ever get together? And why would you stay with him? Why would you trust her? Blah, blah, blah. But there is just that yeah. deeper connection. And I think that, that's, that is kind of the glue, the, the magic of the film. And then you have, the, of and, course, the underwater well, vision well, and all of that. Well, go ahead. Yeah. So, so just well, really quickly. Mm-hmm. I, well, and yeah, I do want to go into the underwater scene. But there's yeah. the, the reason I kind of bring those two pieces up together is had um had the the husband been a more brutish typical masculine person right. i don't think that um that scene of their you know distant kind of love making would mm-hmm. have come off as as intimately personally connecting you know because i wouldn't right. have bought that he cared for her in that way he misses her he wants to possess her because no, he's of the a, way he's, he's a more there's right. something about him that's softer and you go, I yes, see yeah. what they, ha- I see, I, I can't, maybe can't explain it like you say, but I recognize that there is some actual personal, um, deep intimate connection between these two. And it's little parts of the film, like the, mm-hmm. you know, him coming in angry that just don't play out the way they normally would that really work that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah really cool (laughs) and i well and i think maybe that's where you get a sense of vigo's personality coming through i mean i i I notice in like that um hour and a half documentary the cinema de notre temps where people who knew vigo explained described him on multiple occasions as this kind tender sensitive empathetic Mm -hmm. guy now he could also be you know, a hellraiser and, you know, provocative. And he clearly was in his art, but on his personal level, he was a, a nice sensitive man uh, who was probably not one of those, you know, domineering guys whose, whose attraction to women is based on how do they make me look, you know, yeah. or, it, it, you know, the, the guy who wants to have a hot woman on his arm to boost his own ego. It's not even about her. It's like the projection of her image attached to him is what it's all about. Right. Yeah. So this, this guy, uh, Jean, she in was this a film, conquest. He, he right. won her. He's got the beautiful country girl on his bar right now. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but, the, the, but that's not really him. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he is a, he is a tender hearted romantic man who, you know, he does have his fits of jealousy and he does have reasons to say, all right, what am I, what am I involved with here? You know, but when they actually do separate, when he decides, okay, she's, she's left, she's, she's walked out on me. I'm going to just get that barge down the river, deliver my load, do my job and leave her behind. He can't do that and neither can she, but they don't know how to reconnect. So they do have that little kind of magic moment where somehow it's all resolved and, and caught up. And, and that may be even part of the script that Vigo inherited, because I think this was a story that had its own sort of existence mm-hmm. and he was brought in specifically because the 
the confines of this light romance, quote unquote, were supposedly going to prevent him from going down this rebellious road that he'd obviously <laughs> gone with zero for conduct. <laughs> and so, and, and to a certain extent, he stayed in that lane, but he threw his personal touches in there and made it more than just this kind of escapist romance fantasy about life on a barge and they have their little spat and then they get back together again. I mean, that is the, that's the, the elevator pitch version of the movie, but there is more going on in the sort of the, the subtext of how this couple relates to each other and how they each navigate a, around the, the various uh, kind of pitfalls and temptations that threaten their relationship. So yeah, as I talk my way through, it's like, yeah, there's a lot more going on there than, <laughs> than, than immediately meets the eye. And that may be, again, where where the charms of the film do elevate it in, in many viewers' esteems. I also feel like the relatively crude uh, filmmaking techniques may also be a bit of an obstacle to completely sweeping contemporary viewers up in this kind of romantic delirium you know because you know the underwater sequences the the you know just kind of the roughness of filmmaking 1934 style uh on probably a limited budget i i I don't know that you can say vigo was a polished filmmaker he was pretty much self-taught from everything i can understand and have learned and you know you just didn't have the same way of editing sequences and and juxtaposing images in this immaculately polished way that you know even for the last i don't know 30 40 50 years some of those same scenes could have been shot in a different way that would have more of that sort of hypnotic or magical quality to them just on the technical level you know here you've got this barge and you've got this kind of crusty old france pre-war scene Again, as a time capsule, it's super fascinating. I think Renoir also has another film that was, you know, made on one of these barge craft and these watercraft, and so, you know, you, you sort of see relics from a bygone era. Um, but you know, there's limitations. You you sort of have to willingly invest in this type of filmmaking and the black and white images and all the other sort of trappings of what film was like at that time. And, you know, for some people, that's just going to be a little bit more of a stretch out of what they're either used to seeing or what they can sort of connect with and maybe identify with on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did you, did you, how did you like Michelle Simone in this one? You and I, you know, the, the, the fun oh, thing is, yeah. is that we have had a chance to talk about a lot of French <laughs> sure. from the yeah. 1930s yeah. together. Yeah. And of course he's a, a uh, persistent presence, always welcome. Um, yeah. How did you like him in this one? How did you like his his character? He, again, I'm learning this from the commentary, mm-hmm. but you know he didn't always get along with the directors, um, and who knows when I, he's being well, truthful. But yeah. he seemed to really respect Vigo as someone who he says got him, and yeah. he's one of well, these I, things that's magical about the film. Mm-hmm but that doesn't yeah, quite yeah. always make sense to me. <laughs> well, I, I think Michelle Simone is a very special personality and presence in French cinema of this era. And 
you know, on for the next several decades. I mean, it's crazy to think that he was only in his <laughs> like late thirties. He looks like a grizzled <laughs> old man of 65 or 70, you know, who's, who's seen it all. And I mean, the idea that this sailor who's traveled the world and he's going to be the, 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 the sidekick to this young strapling. <laughs> this is just like, you know, this is probably his first command of a ship. Like how is this guy who's done all of these things going to be the number two? And, and after sailing the seven seas and all of that, his job now is just go up and down from Paris to La Havre, you know, a very, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, just driving UPS truck, you know, in your local town <laughs> after you've traveled the world. Right. Um, so anyways, I mean, setting that aside, I mean, he's, he's always like, uh, to me, a very special performer. And I think, I think he probably did appreciate working with Vigo because I think Vigo was a director who was open to spontaneity, improvisation, winging it you know i think there was a fair amount of that that happened in the making of this film where you've got the rudiments of a story but things that happen while you're setting up the scene or you see a potential for an actor or they go off script a little bit uh you know the michelle simone sort of that the solo wrestling exhibition he puts on is just another classic <laughs> sort of physical comedy piece there. So, I mean, just the fact that we've got those performances, they, they absolutely bring this movie to an elevated level. And, uh, I, yeah, I, and I think he is a, he's a different enough character where you can sort of buy into the idea that, you know, she would be intrigued with him and he certainly would be intrigued with her, but he's, but they're also decent. You know, they don't actually cheat on, on, you know, break the marriage vows. Uh, he sort of, I guess he, he's satisfied with the idea that he could sort of you know, bring her under his spell to a certain extent. And he's willing just to leave it at that rather than the full conquest. And she also recognizes that she can have some flirtatious fun, but not really have to go there, you know? And, and mm -hmm. I don't think there's any evidence that she, she ever does, you know, break her vows. She's just disappointed and she's got her own reasons for, you know, feeling you know, a, a lack of attention or she's just now a, sort of second fiddle as her, as her husband is getting into his work and, and focus more on that than on, on her and, and the, and the celebration of, of their just recently <laughs> dedicated marriage, you know? So these are, these are, you know, in some ways common issues that many couples have to deal with and work around once the first flush of romance has kind of run its course. And now you find yourself embarked on this lifelong journey and where's it going to take you? So I, you know, that's a very unique and, you know, a situation that in many ways, none of us can perhaps identify with in the details, but the, the, the tensions and the emotional, kind of lexicon of the film and that's that's pretty standard stuff and but it's also portrayed very very nicely and so i think that that's the connection right there but yeah michelle simone uh this would be a a, a lesser film without him in my opinion yeah i actually wonder if it would be you know a forgotten film if it weren't for the the character that he brings to it again it mm -hmm. makes it 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 spins things just enough from what we're expecting and what we're used to. There's a danger and a and a friendliness about him at the same time mm -hmm. that makes these things intriguing. And it and again, I feel like it works to the film's benefit to have that kind of stuff playing there. It makes me think more about these characters. You know, why again does she stick out her tongue? 
There, there's <laughs> yeah. something about her curiosity there that is both sexual and not sexual. There's an innocence about it that she feels mm-hmm. comfortable and yet is still trying to experience the world. I don't know. There, it, it makes my mind um, open up to various possibilities rather than just, uh, you know, feel like I'm being completely directed. And Michelle Simone is one of those kind of actors who didn't want a strict here's what you have to do and say, and here's your block and here's where your time he wanted some freedom to be and be, and he was the kind of actor who could, that, that, that wasn't a problem for me. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't ruin things by being free. He actually seems to be able to make it an additive uh, element, Mm -hmm. Uh, like the wrestling scene, you know, (laughs) like you say, I mean, maybe that was something Vigo told him to do, but it's also like, what what is what is this? <laughs> well, wrestling by yourself, there, man. <laughs> yeah, well, in an interview in the 1960s that's featured on that uh, Cinema de Notre Dame supplement, mm-hmm. uh, Simon is is interviewed and he says, you know, the second time is always a lie. The second take, you know, like his his theory of acting is like you just got to get it in the first one because after that, now you're repeating yourself and you're you're kind of imitating rather than actually being the character. And so, yeah, I don't know if, if Vigo had this kind of strict first take type of ethos, um, but that you, you mentioned earlier, Simone could be a difficult, uh, you know, part of the cast. Uh, and that, I think that that followed him throughout his, his career. But if Vigo was willing to take that first initial raw take and say, you know, print it, you know, that that's a, that's a keeper that's probably one of the reasons that Simone was, was happy to work with him because he threw himself into it, but did not want to get caught up in the trappings of sort of theatrical repetitious performance. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a full body, uh, inhabiting character, uh, actor. And, and that's, that's his style. And I think he and Vigo probably got along pretty well along that line. All right. Is there anything else you want to say specifically about, La Talant, or do you? Should we talk a little well, bit about the box itself here in a minute? Or? Yeah, I, I think I think I think I've pretty much spoken my piece on the film. I mean, um, yeah this this is a this is a very worthwhile collection of films, and and so I think yeah we can go to just sort of summarizing our thoughts and moving from it. <laughs> yeah, the worthwhileness again. This this is a, a set that intrigues me. I've been through it a few times, even mm-hmm. though I have you know. This will surprise you, David, but I have Criterion releases that I have not seen, oh. and I've had them for years on my shelf. I know, you know, <laughs> but this is one uh, I, I return to, nevertheless. Right. Even yeah. though these aren't my favorite, favorite, favorite films, there's, I think I'm caught up a little bit in the mystique of Vigo and and of mm-hmm. realizing how many other filmmakers have and have kind of paid him homage or have used. Uh, some ideas that are going on. And it's just fun to, to see all of that. Uh, and to, to have this set, which isn't just the films, but is a treasure trove of commentaries. And, mm-hmm. yeah. um, uh, you know, there's an alternate edit of apropos Denise. Um, there's like, you've said the cineca- cineasts de Notre Trump um, from 1964, all about Vigo. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's Truffaut. We ha- did we even bring mm-hmm. up the, the the 400 blows when we were talking about uh, zero for yeah. conduct? Uh, we should uh, yeah, have. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of a big 
leap yeah. there, but it, it totally fits. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there's Truffaut and Romer talking about La Talante in 1968. I mean, that in and of itself is a, is yeah. a bit of a treasure. You know, just mm-hmm. who cares what film they're talking about, to be honest, just to have those two <laughs> talking film together at that time mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. awesome. And then there's the the like film rest- restoration uh, documentary from 2001 yeah. and some of the things going on there. And a really, you know, always welcome thick little booklet. Yes, uh, yes. With lots of essays. It's very sturdy. Uh, let's see. There's one, two, three, four, f- four uh, really full essays uh, that run mm-hmm. through this this uh, this nice uh, booklet. This is just a great little box set. We'll say it is a box mm-hmm. set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's stuffed, packed, uh, maybe even more than some of the, you know, uh, digipack box sets that we've covered. There's there's a, a lot of stuff here to to go through for someone who's interested in these films, but interested in film mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. And and the restorations of these films really are gorgeous. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe there was a day where this might have been an Eclipse series set, but this has so much more to offer than just the films. And I think if you just go in and just watch the films themselves, you're probably depriving yourself of the full enjoyment. I mean, they they do require, I think, the context to really understand the significance and also the what might have been aspect of Jean Vigo's character, whereas maybe other, you know, more fully realized works of this time may not be as, as uh, you know, re- requiring that kind of extra background information. Um, but yeah, this is nice. And, and, you know, for, for listeners, you know, most of the, I think everything on this, in this uh, set is available on the Criterion channel. So you yeah. can sample and, and check it out for yourself. But, you know, I'll always say it's nice to have the Blu-ray. <laughs> the The booklet is in, indeed a very nice piece there. It's printed on thick paper. It's what we got, what, 45 pages, lots of uh, nice heavy. stills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of miss the days when we got this type. I mean, because even some of the box sets that they've released more recently don't mm-hmm. have the printed supplements in the same kind of richness that uh, that used to be kind of the standard issue back in the day. So a, maybe an a good episode or a, a, a something to discuss on TikTok. Mm-hmm. What's going oh, yeah. on here? Is, is it because <laughs> of, is it because of TikTok and things like that, that uh, there's not as much sense that you, you need to get a, you know, four yeah. essays and a bunch of film critics together for, for each and every film. You know, I don't know, but I'll, I'll look forward to hearing your thoughts on that on TikTok someday. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think some of it is strictly the economics of it. And, you know, the fact that not only the economics of printed, uh, printing up those booklets, but you've got to find, you know, dedicated quality writers who really mm-hmm. have some, some things to say. And so I think this is a set that feels like a tribute, like this is a definitive edition as, as good of a... You know, and I'm not sure that these films really need like a 4K release either. I, the Blu-rays look great, so I, I don't think, think we do need to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I, I don't think there's ever going to be a product out there that gives you more of Jean Vigo than what you're going to get here. Uh, so, you know, it, again, as we go further and further in time, and there's more and more movies that have been made, perhaps you know his reputation or his influence will be diminished. You know, like like anything that happens over time, but 
it's still a you know if you love 1930s french cinema or you just wanted to want to get a sense of you know that that creative freedom of of that era of that time when movie making really was much less of a commercialized you know uh you know industry and people were just trying to bring their vision of life and their comments and their insights and their passions into you know visual form well this is a this is a pretty good entry point to to sort of see one of those founding seminal voices i mean you know i think the 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 shadow that he's cast over french cinema in a positive way is undeniable and uh, so much of the great french film that we appreciate even even if you're just thinking of more contemporary releases you know the, the roots are are found right here so that in itself makes it worth you know the three hours that it takes to watch all of his output and mm-hmm. then you know about that much as as well with uh, supplementary materials listening with the commentaries um i give a pretty strong recommendation excellent all right were, were there do you remember was this rumored to be an eclipse set at the time that we might get it on no eclipse? i i don't i don't think so and i think because they realized it would need more than just uh you know, Michael Koreski's liner notes to kind of get it yeah. in context. But um, I know it, it created a pretty nice little bit of hubbub when it was first announced and released. Was mm-hmm. that back in 2011? So it's been, it's been a dozen years now since this, uh, this set's been with us, but uh, yeah, hopefully and, we've given it a little bit of a spotlight and got people thinking about it again. And I, I, I was, while I was playing with the idea of Barbenheimer and being there, you know, I was there the day this was actually yeah. was also being genuine. I remember yeah. I worked, um, you know, around the corner from the, the Barnes and Noble in lower Manhattan. And mm. the day this came out, I took a lunch break and walked over and, and picked it up and watched uh, a few of the films that night and the rest of them over the, you know, I, I do feel that sense of, I remember when, I mean, in a, in yeah. a different way. Yeah. Um, and it's stuck with me over the years. I was, you know, we didn't, I don't think either one of us had any like, well, should this count as a box set? We don't want to discuss those (laughs) films, you know, but, uh, you know, this is, this is a special, a special thing. And if if you are into, you know, French cinema, you've probably seen them, but if not, they're definitely worth it. And if you're not yet, or, you know, if you're thinking David mentioned, you know, five or six, other names of movies that I haven't seen yet, you know, Pepe Lamoco and uh, Port of Shadows and th- those that I said give me kind of the chills. This is part of that story. And it, it is it is great to have that, these pieces there and this these foundations in, in place uh, because it is, it's so fun to not just fall in love with that film, but to start to explore, like you said, the context and the, the history and what, what could have been, but also just what, what was and what people took it as and how this led on to, uh, or was a part of all that was going on in those days. It, it, it's a, it's a very, a very good set. And I think we're going to keep it in very similar territory for our next one, right? Uh, we're, you know, <laughs> somewhat innocent, sometimes a little anarchic, uh, I, I don't know how, how you feel about our next, uh, our next a, a director uh, who one. occasionally colors outside the lines a bit. Uh. <laughs> occasionally sometimes makes you question what you're watching. You know, why is this going on? Why do I feel unsettled? You know, <laughs> we are going to be talking next about uh, the r- relatively recent release 
uh, Michael Haneke's trilogy. Uh, these are the the films, the 1989 film, The Seventh Continent, 1992's Benny's Video, and 1994's 71 Fragments of a Chronology of, of Chance. Um, all, you know, all early films of a filmmaker who did get to, you know, who has continued to make films over the next decades, uh, but that have that kind of, uh, you know, sense of... Uh, here's a strong foundation that someone's going to be able to build on. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, one other little odd little trivia oh, yeah. thing. So did you notice that the, the lead essay in the booklet was written by Michael Almereda? He is a, an American director who did the, I, I know him best for his adaptation of Hamlet, which was made in like 2000, I believe, with Ethan Hawke. And it was set in kind of this hmm. Wall Street setting. Yeah. So Michael Almereda is his name. And Jean Vigo's father was Miguel Almeida, Almereda, um, which, of course, Miguel and Michael are pretty much the equivalent names. And I thought, okay, and I don't know if Vigo's father had a pseudonym. I don't know that why... Vigo wasn't named Almereda, if that's what his father's name was. But I just found it really ironic, and I thought, well, maybe this Michael Almereda, who wrote this essay, took the name as some sort of tribute, you know. But apparently not. At least on his Wikipedia page, that seems to be his born name. So I just thought, what a weird oddity that is that Michael that is Almereda wrote the essay, and it's apparently just you know a couple letters away from the name of. Vigo's father. <laughs> so I don't know. Just, <laughs> I, I, I haven't had a time. I just, and I just noticed that like earlier today. So I haven't had a time to do any more research than that. But just one little puzzling note to throw in there as we wrap things up. <laughs> well, and on that puzzling note, I will say that whenever we see some of these filmmakers who have their like brand, mm-hmm. like he's got this J over top of V in a box yeah. that almost makes it look like a an envelope. You know, this is something that they, uh, I, I believe, just it, this isn't a criterion um, symbol that they popped on. Right. I, that's I, his. I, it, this is his almost a brand or signature or trademark mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. I think we both need to figure out what ours will be, you know, one of these days. We've been doing this long enough now that <laughs> we, right. we, we need to follow some of these uh, filmmakers who have figured out how to make their names or their initials into a stylized something. ITB somehow. Okay. We'll there we go. Yep. And then the, the merch sales will, will oh. proceed forthwith. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> All right, Tara. Well, it's been fun hanging out with you again. Uh, always a good time. Yep, you too. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, David. <laughs>